0: This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph
1: Anderson. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Dr. Matthew Hanna, Director of Digital Pathology Informatics and Breast Pathologist at Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Hanna serves as a member on the CAP Informatics Committee, as well as an editor for the Journal of Pathology Informatics. He's going to talk to us about his experience in the digital pathology program at Memorial Sloan Kettering, as well as recent advances in digital sign-out. What is the current status of digital sign-out? What obstacles and resistance have we faced in remote sign-out? What are regulatory concerns? And of course, the implications of the global COVID-19 pandemic. Were pathologists ready for remote sign-out and what regulatory barriers came down facilitate the signing out of cases remotely and which if any of these gains will become standard practice after the pandemic is over.
0: This episode of Digital Pathology Today is brought to you in part by PAGE. PAGE is leading and enabling the next generation of pathology. From digital slide review to diagnosis, PAGE integrates the full value of computational diagnostics and digital biomarkers within an enterprise imaging solution. With PAGE, patients and their care teams can make effective, precise treatment
1: decisions. Um, Dr. Matthew Hanna, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you for having me. appreciate it.
1: We're talking today uh, largely about remote applications and remote sign-out of cases utilizing digital pathology. Maybe before we jump into that, tell us a little bit about yourself and the digital pathology program you folks are building and developing at Sloan-Kettering. Thank you.
2: So I'm the director of digital pathology informatics at Memorial Sloan-Kettering. I've been here just for a few years, but obviously the Thought and leadership from well before I was here have invested in digital pathology for over a decade and the leadership really were early adopters in this that I was able to come and and join faculty here and hit the ground running. We've assembled a digital pathology scanning team and have really brought on multiple digital pathology systems and validated those that we can offer this to a service for our pathologists and ultimately to our patients.
1: Well, that's wonderful. So I think the question on everyone's mind, on my mind and a lot of our listeners anyway, seems to be what what's taking so long in terms of signing out cases remotely? I mean, we certainly have the capability to do it, do we not? And digital pathology has been with us in some shape or form for the last 20 years. So what what's taking so long? Why is not remote sign out already standard practice?
2: Well. Under the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, they essentially have the primary responsibility for operating the CLIA program. CLIA is the Clinical Laboratory Improvements Amendments of 1988. And so those regulations really include federal standards that all U.S. laboratory sites or CLIA-certified sites have to abide by for assessing, diagnosing, or treating disease. And so part of those CLIA regulations traditionally dictate that slide preparations must be evaluated on the premises of a laboratory certified site, of course, by a qualified person. So if a laboratory has multiple sites or locations, those typically would would need a separate CLIA license for temporary testing or otherwise. And so pathologists have not had the availability from a regulatory standpoint outside of the public health emergency to remotely verify or electronically verify patient cases and so this was done I mean this was not done specifically to digital pathology it actually originally was put in place to avoid conventional bright field microscopy occurring at remote sites and reporting of patients diagnoses from that remote site but CMS temporarily waived that requirement for remote locations to have a separate CLIA license provided that the designated primary site or primary laboratory has a CLIA certification during the public health emergency. And so there is an opportunity now to collect real world data and validate systems during the public health emergency to potentially impact these future regulatory discussions. But other than the public health emergency and these temporary relaxations, the enforcement discretions were only put in place recently and pathologists don't have the availability that other medical subspecialties have for remote work or for telework.
1: I see. So there certainly is a strong regulatory barrier in some sense to remote sign-up. But what about other forms of resistance, so to speak? Just maybe the hearts and minds of pathologists, attitudes, you know, an older generation of pathologists not comfortable with this type of workflow or working remotely. Are there any other factors that you can uh, identify that might be barriers to, to going this route?
2: Well, with any new technology, there is an adoption curve that starts with the innovators who are developing the technology, then the early adopters follow suit, then the early majority, late majority, and lastly, the laggards. There are various pathologist demographics in each of those groups and i would definitely say that they are not skewed with any particular age association there are many senior pathologists who are way more experienced in using digital pathology than some of the newer generations it may be related more to technophobia as a cause to adoption more than age differences but resistance honestly is is mostly due to unfamiliarity with digital pathology systems so msk is seen an increased use of digital pathology systems over the last decade, especially more recently with primary diagnosis. And there is an increase in comfortability and an increase in number of pathologists who feel they're comfortable using digital pathology for primary diagnosis. And I honestly, I think it's more of the familiarity and comfortability that will push through these changes as long as the pathologists have the opportunity to adopt
1: them. I see. So in terms of the uh, comfort level, now we had a very interesting situation, this global pandemic, uh, public health scare, and regulations, specifically the CLIA requirements were relaxed, like you said, and it was in some sense thrust upon us. So let's, you know, take it from the other angle. Were we ready for this? I mean, this is something we've maybe waited, waited for, or fantasized about someday, or assumed it would someday come, but it happened very quickly, very, very quickly. So were we prepared? Did we have the infrastructure in place to all of a sudden almost overnight go to an overnight sign out or remote remote sign out?
2: like you said digital pathology has been around for the last couple of decades and so many institutions who had already laid their foundation for digital pathology before the public health emergency this year were able to quickly pivot to supporting their pathologists and patients during that time and many departments now are looking to invest in digital pathology systems playing catch-up so i believe it really was from the uh, leadership standpoint of each specific department organization if they invested in digital pathology before the pandemic hit this year they were poised in a much better position to offer remote services and and digital diagnostics for their pathologists and their patients as opposed to now needing to look at what technologies are available and hopefully having the expertise to implement and validate those.
1: I see. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about the CLIA regulations. So you you mentioned that the requirement was that cases that they'd be processed tissue processing happens in obviously in a CLIA certified facility but then also the analysis of the pathologist through the microscope either on the computer monitor or the light microscope happen also in a CLIA certified facility and that portion seems to have been waived so are there other regulatory considerations that were holding us back that were subsequently waived is uh, question A. And then question B, how big of a deal really is it to get a CLIA certificate for any facility where you're just going to park a microscope and a computer monitor? Or is there a little more to it than that?
2: Well, for your first question, with the presidential declaration of the public health emergency, that in itself had effects on telemedicine that allowed patient-facing clinicians a much expanded flexibility to provide and be reimbursed for patient care using telemedicine services. That, of course, did not apply to pathology laboratories, since the labs are governed by CMS and CLIA regulations, which, as you stated, was the enforcement discretion provided in March by CMS, and in regards to the CLIA regulations requiring pathologists to be on-site at that CLIA-certified lab. So, another temporary enforcement discretion was in relation to an FDA guidance document that allowed vendors to market non-510k cleared digital pathology systems for use during the public health emergency. Those still need to be properly validated in terms of validating the hardware and software, but there were essentially no more major regulatory barriers blocking laboratories from enabling their digital pathology systems with the CMS and FDA enforcement
1: discretions. I see. So, realistically, though, how how big of a deal is it to actually get a CLIA certificate uh, for remote sign-out of cases? So, during the public health emergency,
2: that is waived, essentially, for this temporary period, and the future of those regulations are still up in the air for how long those are temporarily going to be enacted. Outside of the public health emergency and with pre-existing regulations, getting a CLIA certificate is a process that every lab has to take where there is an inspection and, of course, a lot of documentation and paperwork. However, for temporary testing sites, depending on the complexity of testing that is done at that laboratory, there are variable amounts of documentation and and inspections that will have to occur. And so it really depends on what testing is being done at that facility. But at the end of the day, it's paperwork and inspections. And and if cleared and up to standards, a CLIA certificate can be generated and certified to that laboratory or to that remote site or temporary site.
1: Okay. And so with regulation, maybe people are less familiar, particularly those outside of the laboratory space, maybe less familiar with CLIA. But certainly everyone's heard of FDA, and that's the other piece you mentioned, is that requirements were also waived by the FDA in terms of manufacturers ability to market a slide scanning devices and so forth. So maybe tell us a little bit more about how that works and then maybe just give us an overview of what really is the purpose of FDA regulation of digital slide scanners? Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around that issue. There certainly was in my mind before I started digging into this a little deeper.
2: Right. That's very true. This is a common misconception. The FDA does not regulate how healthcare is practiced. And so the FDA's role is to clear vendors' products, hardware and or software for specific intended uses. And so the FDA's clearance of those devices or digital pathology systems is really based on the intended use and allows that vendor to market their digital pathology system for that specific intended use. So taking primary diagnosis, for instance, the vendor is not able to market their system for primary diagnosis unless they've been cleared by the FDA for that intended use. And there's a whole process for that 510 k clearance However, as I mentioned, the FDA does not regulate how healthcare is practiced, does not regulate how pathologists are able to practice, and that's really up to that laboratory's accreditation body, which, for instance, the College of American Pathologists, or in certain states is a state-specific Department of Health, they have to follow those guidelines and inspection criteria for accreditation of their laboratory where they have their cadence of inspections, and so based on the for instance, College of American Pathologists, whole slide imaging validation guidelines, if they have documentation of the validation specific from that accreditation body, that acts as the accreditation or validation of that digital pathology system for that accreditation body. And so at the end of the day, as long as the laboratory follows specific accreditation body guidelines or validation guidelines of their digital pathology system, they are able to use that for that validated purpose and so that can include non-cleared or cleared fda systems uh, that are available in the in the market today
1: okay so i guess that's that's good news and bad news i guess the good news is that we shouldn't view fda regulation as a type of hindrance that's stopping us from doing something and then Maybe not so much bad news, but it kind of puts the burden on pathologists that it does not absolve us of any responsibilities to develop an appropriately validated system that is you can't just take this thing out of the box, plug it in, and start using it in your lab. You have to go through a somewhat rigorous validation process so could you maybe give us some insight as as to how that could work
2: sure so that, that's completely correct, and so uh you know saying the burden is placed in the lab is is in a sense, a good thing, making sure that the system is properly validated and is in place so that it can be clinically useful to the pathologist as well as to ensure safety for the patients. And through that validation process, those that are involved in the validation truly do learn what what works, what doesn't work, and can make changes to that system and potentially revalidate that system to work for that specific intended clinical use case. And so I always say that the system should be clinically validated in the way it will be clinically used, but during that validation process where for instance the College of American Pathologists whole slide imaging guidelines recommends at least 60 cases to be both read digitally and via glass slides, via conventional bright field microscopy with some washout period of at least two weeks, and then comparing the intra-observer concordance between both glass slide and digital reads or digital remote reads, in this instance of remote validation, and being able to document and understand those concordances as well as any adjudication of cases that may have needed to take place.
1: And that's a very interesting uh, concept. So what exactly are we looking for in that kind of validation? just an end-to-end performance of the system? You know, how good a pathologist is on a Monday versus a Friday? How good Dr. Smith is compared to Dr. Jones? Or, you know, what, what exactly is the, you know, the thing, so to speak, or the gold standard that we're trying to validate or get concordance with?
2: So there is no, so the, again, the, the system should be validated how it should be clinically in use. And so if the digital or digital remote reads are only, breast biopsy from one pathologist and validating that system for that pathologist would be taking 60 cases for that one pathologist to then review via both modalities and comparing their intra observer concordance and at the end of the day if that medical so the medical director ultimately has to sign off on this on these validation processes as well as concordance and documentation and a standard operating procedure SOP has to be developed in order to provide a protocol for the scanning operation as well as the digital or digital remote reads and so it really depends on who is using the system and how it's going to be used and then incorporating all of those variations in the validation process are just key to document and make sure that all of those who are using the system and trained to use that system understand how that system has been validated and use it clinically how it's been validated
0: This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by JAV Advisors. With over 16 years experience, JAV Advisors focuses on business and management consulting for digital pathology and artificial intelligence in deployment within histology, pathology, and cytology laboratories throughout the world. Call 213-258-6268 for more information. JAV Advisors.
1: So once the system's validated and you're ready to use it, let's talk about specifically what are the benefits of signing out cases remotely? I mean, we've obviously, these ideas have been kicked around for the last 20 years or so, but have the clear benefits been brought into focus you know, in terms of both being thrust into this situation during the COVID pandemic, and then, you know, a realistic assessment of what our technological capabilities are in 2020, because I could think of any number of benefits, like being able to share cases across the country, being able to do remote frozen section diagnosis, remote sign out of primary diagnosis, and so on. So is there now a better agreement or a better sense of what the the clear benefits are of remote sign out?
2: Well, specifically during this public health emergency, it's been essential to protect pathologists especially those who are at high risk from harm if if they were to have contracted the virus and not just for pathologists but for all the laboratory and healthcare staff the glass slide does not magically create itself and get scanned right there are dedicated lab staff who are still required to be on site in the lab cutting the slides moving the patient's case along as well as scanning the case to enable the remote pathologist the opportunity to offer continuous care for their patients So these are critical for protecting our faculty staff or trainees. This is not just for health concerns, though. I've received several emails from pathologists thanking me that they were able to remotely sign out when they needed to be home for for childcare or if their child is has virtual homeschooling uh, where otherwise they would have tremendously had had a tremendously challenging schedule juggling all of the new and, and offsetting tasks. There's also been cases where Patients who've needed emergent diagnoses have had the ability to have much faster turnaround times where over a long weekend or When there were staff shortages that remote pathologists Who were experts in that area were able to re- review that patient's tissue digitally and remotely and be able to Electronically verify and sign out that patient's case from home That that patient was now able to have a clinical pathology report generated and have that patient's medical or surgical team be able to enact with a much more efficient management for that patient's disease.
1: Now what about some of the some of the downsides that we might not be thinking about, you know, what about speed? Is the technology in 2020 fast enough to make review of routine cases, you know, palatable or the workflows? Do we have the right workflows in place, you know, from from start to finish getting that specimen into the into the uh grossing bench all the way to creating the slide getting it signed out getting it in the right cues is you know do we have the appropriate workflow infrastructure to practice and then you suggested the wet tissue actually has to be made into a slide so there are going to be a dedicated team of you know pathologist assistants histotechs laboratory personnel that are not going to be able to work remotely so will they be able to You know, function in a more autonomous way, and what's the level of pathology supervision over them? And then, what about technical requirements? You know, pathologists working from home. What if they? You know, do they have the appropriate, you know, hardware at their house and our internet connection speeds up to the task in 2020?
2: Those are all really great concerns and and considerations that are in our real world uh, can be an can be an issue. So, all of the pre-analytic processes in the lab still have the exact same workflow meaning from the point of the patient specimen received in the lab and accessioned through the glass slide generation those all still are require uh, laboratory staff histotechnologists lab aides, to uh, pathologist assistants to gross dissect move all of that tissue along its path to the time it, that glass slide gets stained and cover slipped and now we have the added step of having a, you know, either a digital scanning team or training or histo to take those glass slides that are stained and cover slipped and dried and putting them directly onto a whole slide scanner. And there's been a, a much better uh, compression of that from the digital pathology scanning vendors in, in recent years understanding the lab components and really creating interoperable systems in specific cases where we've had a a great opportunity to be able to really streamline those workflows at our institution. So those from a a speed perspective are there and that that compression of the laboratory I I completely believe will continue and more automation uh, will ensue. In terms of network speeds and, and internet bandwidth, Pathologists at the remote sites have to use some secure connection to either tunnel through a virtual private network or have some other level of encryption from a remote workstation that does indeed throttle their network speeds and we've seen from our own surveys that pathologists have either had their internet speeds cut by a third up to a half of what it normally would be while they're connected to vpn and that's those resources or or computing resources are just necessary in order to have that secure connection but then there's always a balance that we do need to ensure the security encryption of patient data wherever it's being reviewed so ensuring that from a technical perspective that there's sufficient internet bandwidth in terms of download speeds and navigating the digital images are really critical in just understanding the validation process and what hardware are available to those pathologists at the remote site.
1: Right. There certainly is a host of uh, technical requirements and technical concerns. Now, what about quality in the real world, separate from your validation experience? I mean, it works in your validation study, of course, but what about when you go live? You know, anecdotally, have we heard concerns or reports about diminished quality or surprisingly good quality? And are there programs in place, like a real world experience quality monitoring program? Is anything like that in place for remote sign out?
2: So from an image quality perspective, at least in in our hands, our pathologists have actually, as we've surveyed them, have said that they are impressed with the image quality of the digital slides. And so we have, with our experience, learned that QC checks, are required to be in place and multiple of them in the in the digital pathology workflow where images are checked to make sure that of course all of the tissue is captured on the slide that the slides are scanned in focus and that there are any there are not any other digital or even pre-analytic uh, artifacts that would prevent a good quality digital image but at the end of the day the whole slide image is only as good as the glass slide from which it came. And so all of those other pre-analytic artifacts like tissue bubbles or, or air bubbles or tissue folds will translate into that digital slide and may cause them to have digital artifacts like scanning out of focus. So we have really needed to have good communication and feedback to all of the various stakeholders to ensure that those digital images are of good quality and a re-envisioning of the histology workflow may be necessary in some labs where they have to make sure that an appropriate tissue size is being placed in cassettes and that levels are being sectioned close together on the glass slides to decrease scanning time and so on and so forth. So there's there's a lot of lessons learned that people are sharing now to ensure that there is a good processes in place and that the QC checks for the digital images are just as good and quality also extends to as we were just talking about network and hardware requirements in terms of pathologists remote internet connectivity that they have sufficient internet and for some remote pathologists maybe that means getting them internet dongles or other services that they're able to have sufficient internet network speeds to actually review those digital images in an efficient manner. And adding on potential trainees that also need screen sharing capabilities and other software requirements that we actually still invoke an educational experience for all of the trainees during this time and, and otherwise when pathologists are signing out remotely, there's definitely quality considerations across the board.
1: Yeah, now in a similar vein related to quality, let me ask you something that I've never heard addressed in any discussion about remote sign up, but in my mind seems pretty obvious or a pretty large concern. What about professionalism? And pathologists, you know, similar to how there's a, a blurring of a work life balance, so to speak, in 2020. You know, now we have, you know, the functions of home life blurring with work and so on. And what about when I was in training there was a mean old attending who would just admonish me. Anderson, we are examining patients. And we had to go into this room, the inner sanctum, and it was very serious. There was no joking. The patient's lives were at stake. How does this translate if pathologists are going to be working from home at all in terms of professionalism, the environment? Is it going to be more error prone? Any considerations like that? If people thought about that or discussed that.
2: So that's definitely been discussed and I'll give you my honest opinion that if the system has been validated from the technical conditions, I personally don't think it matters to me if that same expert was in the hospital setting versus at a home workstation. Everyone gets a radiology report and no one asks about the radiologist's remote systems or there's a whole Nighthawk system that used to be in place for teleradiology systems or you know, is that remote radiologist you know in their slippers at home and and right. not to knock on radiologists, but we don't ask those questions of what the of what setting that's in. We we trust the system that it's either been at least in the pathology workflow that it's been validated due to the requirements for that to be done before in in clinical space. But in my opinion, again, if that system has been validated from the technical standpoint and how it will be clinically used, and that there's a qualified person rendering that patient's diagnosis using that validated workflow, I'm okay with it.
1: Okay. And now speaking of that other specialty, that other image-based diagnostic specialty, radiology, um, I think it's very ripe for comparisons with between pathology and, and radiology. And radiology seems to be a little bit further along in terms of digitizing the workflows and signing out cases remotely. So anything that comes to your mind as, as to why that might be? Any differences, you know, between the nature of what we're doing and or even the nature of the personalities of people in the specialty that might account um, for somewhat different trajectories between the clinical practice of pathology and radiology?
2: One of the main differences is, in pathology we're still generating glass slides and now adding an additive step to our workflows to actually getting those slides delivered to the pathologists or or trainees for review and so that added step is really the reverse of what radiology had to deal with decades ago when they transitioned from a film system if you, you know if you saw the old movies or shows probably uh, a lot of the younger generations don't even realize these these days but they used to put the little x-ray on the, the light box and they would turn it on and they'd be staring at this actual film but when radiology transitioned from not needing to generate that film to just a pure digital file out the gateway when which they have a standardized format for and networking protocol that also sends patient and and study metadata with they were able to create significant efficiencies from not needing that film. And so we are still generating our own pathology film, which is the glass slide, and and we're now adding that step of scanning that glass slide. So from that standpoint, there's still an additive step in our workflows. And similarly, all of the digital pathology vendors still have their own proprietary file formats there's been significant work on moving the DICOM standard to now include pathology. And several vendors have actually already incorporated DICOM standards in, in their hardware and software. But today, there's there's just no enterprise, seamless DICOM experience in pathology just yet. But I know a lot of work has been pushing forward to, to support that. I mean, there are other standards available in terms of interoperability, but DICOM is probably the furthest along as a standard in pathology imaging. You know, there are definitely other opinions that HL7 standard messaging, uh, which is a very popular standard in in healthcare messaging, and having a laboratory information system integration are sufficient as long as the appropriate or necessary metadata are delivered along uh, with that patient's case. Those people may may not see as much value in another standard such as DICOM. But DICOM while being you know a file format is also a network and communication protocol to send again all of that patients and and study metadata along with the patient images. So there are a lot of uh, capabilities and possibilities that will will definitely need to be uh, ongoing. And one of the other extensions of DICOM is really when we start talking about you know the machine learning or image analysis or annotation workflows where if a standard annotation workflow were to be developed which is in process for DICOM, millions of annotations would need to be exchangeable and interoperable with different software systems. And so, you know, there's definitely just still a lot of work that needs to be done on the roadmap of including interoperability and a seamless experience from the digital pathology system standpoint.
1: Indeed, creating that seamless experience. You've given us a lot to think of there, and I think it's clear we need to have you on again to discuss these aspects and many more. So Dr. Matthew Hanna, thank you so much for being with us today. So just before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you, we're kind of focusing on remote sign-out today and kind of the the gains we've gotten amidst this COVID-19 pandemic, which has facilitated this endeavor to a large extent. So let me ask you, do you think we'll give back any or a lot of these gains that we've been blessed with?
2: So, you know, that's this a large unknown area, and no one really knows what will happen tomorrow these days. Uh, you know, I can't even plan a few days ahead. I hope that sufficient data is collected during these times to potentially influence the, the future regulatory process pertaining to digital pathology or remote workflows. Those are Probably the two biggest arenas that the digital pathology community or pathology community at large will will have to address, you know, all of the experiences that have been gained and all of the validations that have been in process, all of that data is able to be collected and, and that we have some real world evidence that this is safe for the pathologist to actually render these diagnoses for our patients and that, you know, the sufficient efficacy for the long run and, you know, time will
1: tell. All right. Well, Dr. Matthew Hanna from Memorial Sloan Kettering has been our guest. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today.
0: This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe.
1: Thanks for listening.